Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. Hey, good looking, what you got cooking? Well, my house smells like Christmas today. I'm in the midst of making a massive batch of mincemeat. Oh, what's, you know, that's one of those things. What actually is mincemeat? That's what's funny, because when I was young, I thought it was meat, right? Right. And the British, they call ground beef mince. So it sounds like ground meat. But actually, it's things like raisins and fruits and nuts and spices. It's the clove and the nutmeg and the ginger that smell like Christmas. Oh. I don't really like mincemeat, but I saw a recipe for cherry mincemeat in a cooking magazine that I get. So I figured I'm going to make this. And it said, you put all this together, it should make about 1.7 kilograms of mincemeat. Well, I think my mincemeat is alive because there must be about three kilograms and I don't even have enough jars to store it in. So this is doing its final cook in the oven while we're talking. When we're finished, I'm going to put it into jars and, and put them up on the shelves. And send me some. I don't know if this travels, but, but do send me some. But it actually ties into our topic today. Because Buddhism is like mincemeat. <laughs> no, it is because there are a thousand, ten thousand different recipes. Ah. And we're all wondering who's got the recipe just right. Just and of right, course, yeah. it's Grandma Jundo yes. who's got it figured out. Everybody <laughs> else is wrong. Well, I don't know if they're wrong, because sometimes you tweak one element in a recipe and it's good for that version, and the next week you put more spices and it's good for that version. Actually, yes, I was just kidding. But that's our topic today, is all the different recipes or flavors of Buddhisms, with a Z at the end, Buddhisms in the plural. Buddhism is not just one thing, and I have to be careful talking about this, because I'm going to be commenting on many traditions that I am not part of. It's like a guy who plays football, the I mean American football, the only kind. Right. By the way, not that, not that stuff you have there in the UK. Yeah. But uh commenting on soccer and basketball and baseball that I really am not a player of. And I can't say my way is better. I might be able to say some ways and it's different or special. But I cannot say that football is better than basketball or that abomination that you have there in the... Though I did watch that TED show. What was it? Ted, Ted uh, we were talking? Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of changed. It's a good sport, so. Okay. So if I can just start looking at the big picture. Yeah. We have Buddhism that started in India. We have a version in Sri Lanka. We have a version in countries like Thailand. Yeah. Then we have, well... Tibetan Buddhism, obviously, but Chinese Buddhism died off and became Zen. I don't think Chan in China is very vibrant. Okay, we're going to get to that. This is just, I just want to draw a map to start. I heard a a scholar say yesterday that right now there are more Buddhists or people who identify as Buddhism in mainland China than the entire population of the United States. 
So it depends how you look at that. Okay. We've also got South Korea, which has their own particular flavor. Yes. Does Taiwan have a version of Buddhism? Taiwan does. And uh, the, the, the mainstream uh, Chinese Buddhism, again, I'm, I, I, as I understand it from someone who is looking from outside, is a Chan, which is the Chinese pronunciation of Chan, which is also what they have in Taiwan. But uh, it's a very different flavor. And uh, I compare it to the difference between Japanese food and Chinese food. Kind of same ingredients, noodles, <laughs> tofu, but they do very different things with them. Okay, so finally we have Western Buddhism, but we've got to divide that because American Buddhism is different from European versions, and West Coast is different from East Coast, kind of like jazz. You know, West Coast jazz was more laid back, and East Coast jazz had the bebop sound. It's like the the old joke that if, you know, you got 10,000 Buddhist teachers in America, which means you got 10,000 different types of Buddhism, but actually you got more than that because everybody who listens to the teacher makes their own Buddhism. There's nothing orthodox. You know, I, I, we have a tree leaf sangha, and I've got all the people who are practicing in our sangha, so you would think that they would hone exactly to what Jundo teaches. No, it's like herding cats. Yeah. Nobody listens to what I say, and they all take what I say and then make it into what they wish. Yeah. So where does tree leaf fit? You're in Japan— so it's Japanese yes. Zen Buddhism, but you're American, no. so you're influenced by that sort of flavor as well, aren't you? Tree leaf is pure Orthodox tree leaf Soto Zen Buddhism, because I'm a Soto Zen Buddhist, and I wanted to compare Soto Zen Buddhism to other flavors of Buddhism. But the truth is that, again, you have as many flavors as you do chefs making mincemeat. And um, tree leaf has its own flavor. And it's, you know, even when you talk about uh, Thailand or Burma, you have to say, well, did you mean a thousand years ago or 2000 years ago or what we have now, which is really Buddhist modernism, which is a very reformed and updated version of even these kinds of Buddhism we think are very traditional. And even I mentioned China. What's happening in China now or has happened since the 20th century is actually a kind of reform movement. Things are, the Buddha said it, all things are changed, including Buddhism. Well, even if you look at a country like Tibet, historically, there were four major Tibetan schools of Buddhism, and they all had different attitudes and different doctrines. Tibetan Buddhism has also changed as it's come west and is attempting to, to uh, make itself more, uh, shall we say, modern and uh, palatable to the modern 21st century scientific outlook, uh, which is often in conflict with many of the Tibetan beliefs, which can be very, shall we say, magical and have views of how the universe works that science would sometimes disagree with. So there is this tension running all through Buddhism. And some people say that's, you know, oh, science only knows science stuff. It's materialism. And the Buddhism knows Buddhist things which are beyond the material. You know, I think that's, you know, true to a point, but I get Buddhists mad at me because I often say, well, you could use that argument to say the Loch Ness Monster exists because the Loch Ness Monster is just something science can't detect. We have to say that there are many traditional beliefs that don't fit our modern understanding of 
how the world works. And all schools of Buddhism have been wrestling with this since uh, at least the uh, start of the 20th century. Okay, so where do we begin to... Can, can we sketch out a sort of Ur-Buddhism where it started? We know about it started in India. We, we know about the Pali Canon, but the Pali Canon was, was composed and written down long after the Buddha was dead, and things had already started changing by then anyway. Yes and no. There is, believe it or not, no historical evidence that there was ever a Buddha who lived. There is an argument to be made that he is a composite. I happen to believe there was somebody. And the life story that you probably know about him being in the palace and he saw the chicks and he didn't dig it, you know, man. So he leaped over the wall by night and shaved his hair off and that whole story. And then that came centuries later. There is almost no biographical information about his life. The story you know, the Siddhartha story, is something that was pretty much developed later. And yes, you are correct, they had oral teachings, so we don't know exactly uh, what was written or spoken in them until it was written down at least a couple of centuries later. But, but, scholars can kind of triangulate a few of the early teachings that more or less probably were there from very early, probably from somebody who was this guru, the Buddha. And those are things like the teaching of dukkha, that life is suffering because it's never quite satisfactory, and that things are impermanent, and probably rebirth. He was an Indian man who taught uh, some version of uh, that you die and uh, you come back, uh, and uh, you, you leap into the next womb and uh, come back again. So these are very early teachings. However, what happened almost immediately is the commentary tradition on the old stories. For example, the Vasudhi Maga, which is the mainstream Theravadan. Again, sorry guys, I'm talking as an outsider. I'm talking basketball. I'm a football player. All right, I admit it. But the Vasudhi Maga is a commentary on how to practice Buddhism that really changed in my view, the simplicity of the early teaching and made a system of very much uh, reaching various intense concentrated states and needing to go through a very specific progression of insight in order to reach very specific stages of nirvana. And I don't think it was that clear in the early teachings. And so what we call Theravada Buddhism, which has the reputation of being very early, is actually a later development. It's an interpretation, too. So what I'm trying to think is that things tend to go from simple toward complicated. The more chefs get involved and each one tweaks the recipe, and they come up with their own version, and maybe over time, a couple of virgin... Maybe over time, a couple of versions merge and fit together. You said a couple of versions. I heard you. <laughs> that was you an accident. You can't cut that out later. Okay. That's not our religion. That's the other religion. Okay. But things kind of mix together. And when you get, let's say, a dozen different viewpoints and they mix together, you still have six of them. So things get more and more complicated over time. If you look at Stephen Batchelor, who spent a career, well, half a career, trying to prove that the original Buddhism is simple and doesn't contain any sort of supernatural stuff. And 
you can agree or disagree, he picks and chooses, etc. But he's suggesting that it's kind of like a backwards funnel, right? At the beginning, it was simple. And over time, with all these commentaries and, and, and additions, it got much more complicated. Yes, but I don't like his filter. Uh, you know, I'm a Stephen Batchelor fan. We've spoken about this before. I'm glad that he modernized the view and said to some of us who are kind of hesitant about rebirth, literal rebirth, that, hey, you don't have to believe in that. But he makes the same mistake of filtering out too much. Uh, he, he, for example, uh, tries to argue that anything that the Buddha shared with other Indian philosophical or religious systems, uh, the Buddha did not believe, which I think is ridiculous. Yeah. I think that the Buddha believed in rebirth, and I think the evidence is uh, pretty strong okay. for that. It'd be hard to say no. The other thing is that when Buddhism has gone to other countries, it has melded with the existing belief systems. And I think the most obvious is Tibet. When Buddhism went to Tibet, and encountered, I think it's pronounced Bun, uh, the indigenous religion, belief system, spiritual system, it, Buddhism took on a much more florid flavor with, we can see it in the mandalas and all the complex visualizations that Tibetans perform and the many different rituals and practices. And, and it's a long path. They have a thing called Lam Rim in Tibetan Buddhism, which is this long path of all these things you have to do to get to the end zone. And 10,001 special meditations and techniques and chants and empowerments. Yeah. And it's beautiful again. Time to put in, a, 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 because, you know, we're going to get letters uh, or, uh, you know, people who take this wrong. It's a beautiful path for people who find their power there uh, in those empowerments. But, uh, you know, let's get to our central topic. What makes Soto Zen different or unique. I never said better. I said different or unique compared to these other ways, including from other flavors of Zen. That's interesting because when Dogen formed Soto Zen, he was simplifying a lot of things that might have been more complex in other countries. Perhaps. Not that Dogen is necessarily simple in terms of his words and, and his writings and all that, but that it's practices that are much more simple that seem to go back to an earlier concept of what Buddhism is. Yes, he was a kind of a, the, the a nouvelle cuisine a chef who took the intricacies of old-school French cooking and put it down to a simple few ingredients and sauces. Yes, I understand this. His recipe did have a, a kind of feel for, for getting down to the essence, but again, it was his essence. Right. And other people would disagree on what the essence was. Yes, and as with Nouvelle Cuisine, the serving size was very small, so you were always left wanting for more. Yes, which is good because it it, it is a Zen monastery and uh, we, we are uh, minimalist. But what makes it different from other flavors of Buddhism? I could ask you now, uh, Kirk asked me and then you would say, go ahead, what did what make it? Okay, let's skip all that. <laughs> uh, here's what I feel are the different flavors of cooking Buddhism that you have, and what makes Soto Zen in its modern form a little different. You have, for example, types of meditation that try to go very, very, very deep to have an experience that I could only say is a radical concentration, dropping of the self, maybe some sense of oneness that leaves the world behind. I was reading today some uh, modern practitioners of some Burmese styles of meditation who go deep, deep, deep into samadhi until they have 
very intense experiences of the dropping away of any sense of self. I think it is attainable, but here's what makes Soto Zen different. Imagine you're in New York City looking for New York City, and you think all the streets, the buildings, and the taxis are obstructions that get in the way of finding New York. So you dig down, 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 down to find the root of New York. And you know what? If you dig hard enough and you get through all the basements and sub-basements, you're going to find it. The foundation of New York, very clean, very pure. Because it is true that what's going up there on the street, man, sometimes it's lousy. You got your, your drug addicts and your crime. You got your smoky buses. It's ugly up there, okay? So you got to get rid of all that to get down to the base. And a lot of Buddhism is about that. Also Dogen, which is sometimes compared to Zen, sometimes it's about clearing it all out, clearing it all out and getting to this one pure field of grass where everything is clean and pure. That's a Tibetan practice, which is considered to be something that is esoteric and not something that people uh, can do without specific empowerments. Soto Zen is a little different. In Soto Zen, you realize New York City not by looking for New York, not by digging down for it, not by getting on a train and looking around from station to station. Where's New York City? You're standing right in Times Square, in the middle of it all, and you realize this is New York, and New York is the foundation. And with all the ugliness, with all the confusion, you can see the simplicity and the pure light that shines through. You don't try to clear it away. You don't try to, how to say, get down to the base. You realize the whole thing is so one that the light shines through it all. That is the Soto Zen perspective. You realize that you've been looking for New York City, but it's been there all along. Some people say that you got to go maybe through lifetimes, but at least all kinds of meditations. Take the A train and switch to the D, go out to Staten Island, get off, take the ferry, come back. Where's New York? But the Sotos and people said there's another type of meditation where you're not looking or digging deep. You stop and open your eyes and realize. It's right here because, you know, some people look for purity and they look for perfection and they look to have some experience that's very special. But if you can sit in a way where the sitting itself is perfection with nothing else to do and there's no other place to go, somehow it changes everything. It's really weird. It's like you can find something by looking for it. But when you already got it and it's here, there, and everywhere, you can just stop and here it is. That's what Shikantazar, way of Zazen, is. And it makes it very different from a lot of these other practices. Okay, so you've been touting Soto Zen here. I'm biased. But let's go back to some of the other types of Buddhism, because there are types of Buddhism where people don't even practice a form of meditation. Right. Uh then the other type, I, I was talking about meditation types. Most people don't practice meditation in any country. In Thailand, Burma, China, Korea, the average Buddhist, Japan, America, maybe. Well, America is actually a little different, but most people don't practice it. They want a worshipful religion in which, like in any religion, there's some higher power and you pray to them and say, hey, my son's sick, make him better. The crops in the field need to grow. We need rain. 
That is what religion does. And there are, that's why there are golden statues. And you light incense and you say, hey, Buddha, do me a favor or Jesus, do me a favor. Much the same. Much the same. And Soto Zen, of which I'm part, has done this too and still does this in Japan. It's in the West that we've gotten away from this. Most people don't come to Buddhism to want to pray and get a favor. But actually, they do too. Because anybody does. When I get a sick person come to Tree Leaf and they say, look, oh, my kid's sick. Can you give me a chant that will help? I give him a chant. It makes him feel better. Or uh, there's a statue. If I light incense to the statue, will it, it help my grandfather who's, who's not too well these days? Yeah, go ahead. Light the incense. Because that's what people need. They need a higher power. I'm not one to say that there isn't a higher power. So I say, go ahead. It couldn't hurt. So is the Soto Zen concept of Shikantaza a radical refusal of a higher power? No. Is it saying that I'm not praying to New York, but I'm finding that New York is here anyway? No, I would say it's more like saying that whatever is the highest power is right here on Toidy Toid Street in Broadway. <laughs> By the way, I haven't been in New York in ages. I don't know if there is a Toidy Toid Street in Broadway. Do all countries have this, I guess you would call it a spectrum of Buddhism, from the most popular burn incense to the most esoteric sit and meditate? Or have some countries lost the meditation part? All of them. I would be hard-pressed to think of one that lost the meditation part uh, completely, although actually in Burma and Thailand, which are considered heavy meditation, insight, Theravadan meditation countries, they had to revive it because it was pretty much dead. Even Buddhism was pretty much dead uh, in some ways. In, uh, for example, Sri Lanka had to be revised uh, and revived, I should say. And uh, so what we do now as Theravadan practices, in my understanding, are basically a revival and, how to say, someone had to kind of look in the books and figure out <laughs> what the old practices were. Yeah. So they may not be the old practices. Right. They're someone's idea uh, Mahasi Sayadaw and some other reformers to try to recreate what they believed were the old meditation ways. So Tibet is an interesting example. I saw a documentary some time ago. Um, it was a Werner Herzog documentary about, I believe, the Dalai Lama giving a Kala Chakra initiation. Mm -hmm. He ended up being sick, and so he couldn't go through with it. But uh, Herzog was following all these pilgrims who were doing these prostrations over hundreds of miles. And it looks like you've got this tiny group of monks. Yes, there's probably a lot of Tibetan monks in northern India, um, but it's still a tiny group compared to all the rest of the people. And it's almost like the rest of the people who go there, they don't really know what's going on. They're just, just there for the Woodstock-like element of this Kalashakra festival. Well, I wouldn't say the Woodstock element. They're there for, I would say, some spiritual reason, maybe. They, they, they believe they're going to get some merit out of it, maybe a good re rebirth. Maybe they will uh, keep on the good side of the, the Buddhas and the gods and, and get the rain they need for their crops. Uh, that's why most people participate. Plus, of course, yeah, I think it's the big social event. Yeah, You know, there's not a lot to do. Nothing on Netflix. Go over to the Kali Chakra. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So basically... What we do is a minority in terms of people who are involved in Buddhism. The, the fact of actually sitting zazen, sitting a form of meditation. Yes. For lay people, certainly. Absolutely. 
And it's a very modernized interpretation in which most Westerners are trying to make it uh, somehow mesh with modern ideas of psychology and physics uh, so that uh, most of the uh, overtly superstitious or, uh, how to say, uh, more mythical beliefs that kind of clash, the big one being, for example, that the Earth is flat and uh, that uh, you will literally come back as a uh, as a puppy or uh, 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 an azure fighting god. Uh, these beliefs are ta- kind of left at the wayside a bit, yes. Is it fair to pick and choose like that? Do we have the right to do that? Some people say it's uh, cultural appropriation, and I say, well, it's yes, it's my right to make a flavor of a mincemeat that is different from all the other recipes from mincemeat. But that doesn't mean if you like your mincemeat, please make your mincemeat. I, I, I might not believe that your mincemeat is the best mincemeat. But uh, I, I think uh, I, I, I will serve mine and you will serve yours. Now, I've had people tell me, oh, you know, uh, Ajundo, because you don't believe in uh, a couple of things. You're, I, don't, I say I don't, I don't, I'm not a non-believer. I'm just kind of very skeptical of rebirth, literal, very literal views of rebirth. You're not a Buddhist. I always take objection to that. I am a Buddhist. I believe in Basically, everything else, uh, the, the main teachings I mentioned of that there is no self, uh, or there is a self, but it's not the only way to view the self, and impermanence, and dukkha, suffering. Uh, uh, and, uh, yeah, no, but uh, no, you don't believe in rebirth. You're not a Buddhist. And I say, well, tough. You stick to your mincemeat, man, and I'll stick to mine. Okay, Roshi, where do we go from here? I got a real craving for mincemeat. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.